0: This is They Create Worlds, episode 94. Epics, not epic.
1: One, two, three, four. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people.
0: Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, when we first came up with this subject, and I was editing the last episode, I sent a message to Alex going, Wait a second, didn't we already cover epics? And then he was like, no, 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 not epic. Epics. That's right. Oh, okay, that makes perfect sense now. Epics. And for those of you not reading from home, that is... E-P-I-C versus E-P-Y-X. That's right. One of those we've talked about, the other we have not.
1: Or to put it more accurately, we've never had an episode about it. If you've been listening to all our episodes, I think it's probably fair to say, actually, that at this point, Epix is the company we have talked about the most without ever actually covering it, which isn't to say that we've ever gone in-depth into any of their games. But it's a company that keeps coming up because so many of the people that were at Epics went on. The company basically sputtered out at the end of the 80s, technically continued to exist on paper for a couple of years in the 90s. But it went away pretty quickly. A lot of the people there went on to do bigger and better things elsewhere, most notably at Sega. So we did have some discussion when we were doing our Sega versus Nintendo extravaganza about Epics and some of the people from Epics just because of that. But we've never actually looked at the company which was actually a very major player and a very important company uh, in the 80s. The EA episode is another one where we talked about them in passing because EA was very driven by what Epics was doing when they were getting into some of their own stuff like Skate or Die, which they actually poached a whole team of people from
0: Epics to make.
1: So, they've had a lot of influence even if the company is long since
0: gone this is not the case of epics was reborn as epics no really the epics we're talking about really comes from the 70s 80s early 90s as we've said and the epics that we covered before it really late 90s early
1: 2000s well founded in 1991 epic mega games was was founded in 91 and kind of its first really big triple a product because they were in shareware was unreal tournament which as you said was late 90s 98 Or sorry, the the original Unreal, not Unreal Tournament, which was, as I said, 1998.
0: I think we've established that these are definitely two separate companies, completely unrelated. They just have a name that pronounces pretty much the same, but is spelled very differently.
1: Right. And one's kind of singular and one's kind of plural. Epic versus Epics.
0: Exactly. Where did this company come from way back in the early 80s,
1: late 70s. Late 70s. It is actually one of the very first computer game publishers that was established by what kind of became the standard of a couple of people coming together, making a game, then being like, hey, why don't we sell this together? You had some publishers that existed right before they did that were more kind of, hey, let's gather in all the stuff other people are doing and sell those. But this was more along the lines of later companies like Sierra and Broderbund, where you had kind of entrepreneur-programmer combinations. But these guys were founded before Online Systems, before Broderbund. They were founded in 1978. The founder of the company, and uh, yes, there really was only one founder, I'll get to that for the people that are like, but it has a co-founder, and it's like, not exactly, and you'll see what I mean. The founder of the company was a gentleman named Jim Connolly, who I actually had the privilege to interview last year. To my knowledge, he had never been interviewed before for a historical retrospective interview. I managed to track him down and got him on the phone, and we had a 90-minute conversation, which was great. So uh, I've interviewed a couple of people that were at the company, and this is one of those unique interviews that I've been able to have. Jim Connolly was a computer guy. He went to the University of Pittsburgh and was exposed to computing there. He was exposed to early mainframe games there. He was definitely your stereotypical nerdy type of guy for back in the day. He was really into board wargaming. He was into Lord of the Rings and science fiction and fantasy literature and all of that stuff. He didn't get heavily involved with playing computer games on mainframes when he was at Pittsburgh. But he was exposed to them. he seen stuff like Lunar Lander and Star Trek, games we talked about before. After school, he went into the Navy. He was in Naval Intelligence. And then when he got out of the Navy, he came to Silicon Valley and worked as a programmer and engineer for several big high-technology companies, uh, including Westinghouse and GTE. Big names there. So the way he got involved in making games... Is as I said, he was a very avid war gamer. So he was looking for a group to play war games with, uh, and he discovered one in Mountain View, which is one of the towns in Silicon Valley. And not only played war games with them, but also introduced them to Dungeons and Dragons because another thing that he had been exposed to in college at Pittsburgh was D&D. And this is right at the very beginning of D&D. We're talking about original gray box first edition D&D that he had started playing. And so he actually introduced this into the Wargaming group in Mountain View, and they started playing around with that. He enjoyed being the dungeon master. I I think he alternated with another person, if memory serves. He wasn't doing it every week or whatever, every night, however often they met. But he was one of the primary people serving as a dungeon master. So he was also very interested in computers, obviously, because he was a programmer. And he was interested in the fact that computers were starting to come into the home. But he was not interested in, like, building his own computer. There were kind of two waves of hobbyists that entered the very early computer scene. There were those that were really into the hardware engineering and were like, goody, goody, I get to solder my own transistors onto my own circuit board. I'm so excited. And these kind of hardware guys were the ones that got in at the very beginning with the Altair computer and the MSI computer and all of these early kit machines that came out in the 1975 to 1977 period. And then there was a second wave that really couldn't care less about building a computer, but really loved programming and loved the idea of being able to have a computer and program on a computer. So, Connolly did not get involved with the Altair computer or with the MSI or the Sol 1 or the Sphere or any of these really early kit computers because he had no interest in building a computer. But once the Trinity hit in 1977, which, of course, we've talked about before, that excited him greatly. So he ended up buying a Commodore PET. That happened to be the one of the Trinity that he bought. He used it in his D&D campaign. You know, he used it to keep track of things in the campaign, which makes sense. And he was fooling around with it. And he decided, you know, why don't I try to write a game on this thing? Now, there's a myth that's gone around that the whole reason that he decided to write and sell a game is because then he could write off the computer purchase as a business expense. I can state definitively that that is not true because I have now talked to the man. And so I asked him that question. And he's like, well, you know, I did end up getting to write it off. I mean, that much is true. He really did write it off as a business expense once he was using it as part of a business. But that was not the reason that he wrote a game. It was just a happy bonus, (laughs) so to speak. But he had the computer, so he thought, hey, I'll write a game because he's really into games. He kind of comes up with the idea of taking that Star Trek game the one we've talked about before, the one that you had a graphical version of on your computer. Talked about it in our time-sharing episode. Basically taking that Star Trek game and turning it into a tactical big fleet strategy game instead. So a lot of the basics are very similar to the Star Trek game. You have the ship, you move it around, it has energy that you use for weapons and shields and all of this. But instead of you having one ship and then fighting all of these Klingon ships... He was like, let's have a fleet battle between two players, and they each control lots of ships, and these ships will have different characteristics, different weapons, different energy levels, whatever, and then we'll have a nice Starfleet battle confrontation thing between them, because he's a big war gamer. That's the kind of thing he likes. So that's the genesis of what becomes the company's first game, which was uh, Starfleet Orion. The company doesn't even exist at this point. I should say that's the genesis of Connolly's first game, Starfleet Orion. So Connolly is a pretty decent programmer. I mean, he programs for a living. He likes playing games, but he doesn't really have any experience designing games. So he turns to his D&D group for help in this regards. There was another another member of this group by the name of John Freeman. And John Freeman is the guy that is usually said to be the co-founder of the company with Jim Connolly. I'll get to that in a second. John Freeman was a freelance writer, but he was a freelance writer that had done a lot of critique on and a lot of writing on games, card games, board games, etc. That wasn't the only writing he did, but that was part of what he did. And he'd actually become fairly well known in certain circles, because he wrote a reference book called A Player's Guide to Table Games. Because he wrote that book, then a magazine called Games Magazine discovered him and was like, hey, why don't you write a regular column for us or write regularly for us? So he started contributing to Games Magazine, and he was uh, basically making a living as a freelance writer with a lot of focus on games and game design. He knew a woman by the name of Susan Lee Mero. She might have just been Susan Lee then. I'm not sure if she was married yet. She might not have been married yet whom I've also talked to because she gets involved in the game industry, but Susan Lee Merrow had been contracted to write a book, like a technical manual, for uh, a chip company. She actually ended up subcontracting John Freeman to help her write that book for the company. So they got to know each other, and they kind of became friendly, and Susan Lee Merrow was also in this D&D group. Now, she wasn't actually a big nerd. She was there more for the social aspect. She knew somebody that was going to the group, and she got invited along. And so she enjoyed being there just to socialize with everybody. She did take part in the game as well, but it wasn't her main reason for being there. She wasn't like a big role-playing person. But uh, she was in the group, and she knew about John and John liking games, so she invited John along to the group. And that's how John joined, and that's how John Freeman and Jim Connolly met each other. And so Jim Connolly's working on his game. He learns, maybe he already knew, but if he didn't already know, he learns at some point that John has done a lot of writing on games and done a lot of analyzing of game rules. So he was like, hey, John, why don't I'm working on this game. Could you help me? That's what they did. Connolly did most of the programming. Freeman did most of the designing of the ships and the scenarios. They built this game, Starfleet Orion, together. Once they had a game, they needed to be able to sell it. So uh, around November-ish, 1978, Jim Connolly established a company, and that company's name was Automated Simulations, not Epics. Automated Simulations. So Jim Connolly actually founded the company, and then after he founded it, he gave shares in the company to John Freeman. So John Freeman was very much a co-owner of the company. He had an ownership stake in it. He technically was not a co-founder because Connolly went and created the company first and then brought him into it. At least that's Connolly's telling of it.
0: So essentially he set up all the paperwork, the filing with the government and local authorities and then said, hey, I would like some people to sort of buy into this to help fund this thing. Hey, John, would you like to come and work with me?
1: Right, and I'm not even sure he made uh, John Freeman like, Purchase shares in it. He might have just granted him shares. I'm not sure, but the point is, you know, John Freeman was very much a co-owner. I'm not trying to make it sound like Connolly was telling me that Freeman had nothing to do with the company, because nothing of the kind. It's just that he technically didn't co-found it. That's a nitpicky little detail. So yeah, they found the company in late 1978, around Thanksgiving ish. They released the game in December 1978. It does. Eh. I mean, they sell a few units. The market isn't very big at this time. There's really no such thing as distribution at this time. These really early guys, they're basically just calling computer game stores in their area or walking into computer game stores in their area and saying, hey, I have this game. It's really cool. You should put it on your shelves. And, you know, basically every computer store would be like, absolutely, we'll put it on our shelves, because at that time there was so little software, they'd take anything. And if it sold, they'd reorder it. And if it didn't sell, they'd never talk to you again. (laughs) I mean, you know, it it was a very kind of informal, very Wild West kind of software industry you had in late 1978, early 1979. They do some units, but one complaint that comes out right away is, well, you need two people for it. I mean, there is no computer opponent in this game, Starfleet Orion. There's no AI. There's no AI. It's two players only. You know, I asked Connolly about this, and remember, Connolly didn't really mess around with computer games that much on mainframes and whatnot, even though he was aware of them. His main point of reference was board games and Dungeons and Dragons. So in Jim Connolly's mind, a game like that is a contest between two humans. It never even occurred to him that people wanted to play a game like that against the computer. So, <laughs> you know, once they realized that, it's like, oh, okay. And so then in 1979, they actually created a game called Invasion Orion, which was basically the exact same game, except it also had a computer opponent, an AI that you could play against. It wasn't two player required. So he started writing Starfleet Orion on the pet, and it did get released on the pet. But another thing that I learned, people just kind of assumed because he wrote it on the pet that it came out on the pet first. Uh, But another thing I learned when I talked to him is it actually came out on the TRS-80 first, which is quite simply because the TRS-80 had the largest install base, as we discussed in our Trinity episode, of those original computers. So the platform that you want to get that out on first is that TRS-80 platform. So at some point they got a TRS-80, they ported it over, and that was the original version, but it was also out on the PET as well. Both the TRS-80 and the Commodore PET, which people may recall from our hardware discussions, were character-based graphics only. No bitmap screen, no sprites. You could do slightly more than ASCII characters with them because there were certain basic geometric shapes or whatnot that were also included in the character set. So you could do a little more than character-based graphics, but for the most part, it was like ASCII art-type graphics. So, I mean, the ships were letters, explosions were asterisks. There was nothing fancy at all about these graphics, unfortunately. As far as I know, and if Jeff can prove me wrong, he's welcome to. As far as I know, there is no footage of either Starfleet Orion or Invasion Orion that we can put in the show notes. I've seen screenshots of them, but I have never seen a video of them. I'll try to find it, but as he said, if I can't, don't be surprised. Right. So I, I don't know too much about how it played. Or in that sense, but I have seen screenshots and it was definitely letters and asterisks and all of this. Uh, and the gameplay was very similar to the Star Trek game, except instead of one ship versus many ships, it was many ships versus many ships in different scenarios. So that's how the company started. And this is the same company that would come to be known as Epics. That's a name change. Automated Simulations and epics are the same company. Primarily these two guys, Jim Connolly and John Freeman. John Freeman is not a programmer. He's a writer. So it's a combination of a guy who knows programming really well and a guy who knows game design really well doing their thing together. So as they're promoting these games, these first two games that they've created, Starfleet Orion and Invasion Orion, they start taking it around to computer shops, they start going around to conventions, And one place they go is a convention called DundraCon, which I believe still goes on today. It was one of the very early conventions in California dedicated to Dungeons and Dragons. Dun, Dungeons, Dra, Dragons, Con, convention. So they take the game to DundraCon, and people are like, okay, that's kind of cool. But what we'd really like to see is Dungeons and Dragons on the computer. Because it's DundraCon. They're kind of into that. Nah. (laughs) So they took that feedback to heart. It's like, okay, so clearly there are other people, because they're Dungeons and Dragons players too, obviously, but they're like, okay, clearly there are people out there that are waiting for some kind of Dungeons and Dragons related game. So let's give the people what they want. So they start work on a Dungeon Crawl product, one of the very first computer RPGs. Some people call it the very first. It depends on exactly how you define it. There are two games that came out in 1978, Beneath Apple Manor and Dungeon Campaign, that are a little quirky in the way that they apply D&D-style rules, but either one of those you could arguably call a computer role-playing game. And they both predate, obviously, Temple of Apshai, which comes out in 1979. Even if it's not the very first, it's still definitely one of the first, and it's the first kind of big success. Beneath Apple Manor and Dungeon Campaign don't really sell a lot of units. Temple of Apshai ends up selling a lot of units over its life. So, at the very least, the first kind of truly successful computer RPG.
0: One of those pieces of software that really puts the genre on the map.
1: Right, exactly. It's more explicitly modeled on D&D, though it doesn't really implement all the rules of D&D. You do generate characters with the standard D&D attributes, but, I mean, most of the attributes don't actually do anything. It kind of works on a pseudo-real-time system. The best way to kind of explain it is it's similar to the active-time battle system in the, the Final Fantasy game, starting with Final Fantasy IV, which is basically the game proceeds in turns, but if you just stand there and don't do anything the monsters will keep taking turns. You know, kind of similar to that active time battle system in, in the Final Fantasy games. It also had a fatigue system, which is not a D&D thing. That's something they added on top of that, but it's part of implementing, I think, the pseudo-real-time thing. In addition to tracking health, it also tracks fatigue, and doing actions takes fatigue, and you have to rest after a while, uh, you know, to restore your fatigue. restore your energy bar or whatever, your energy level. If you run out of energy points or run out of fatigue points then you can't do anything for a while until you get them back. So you can rest to restore points, but because of this pseudo real-time nature of things resting counts as like taking turns or whatever, so as you're resting the monsters are still moving around and you know could come up to you and bite your face off. So That's kind of what's going on in Apshi. It's a pretty basic dungeon crawl kind of thing. You go into a dungeon, you fight monsters, you gather treasure. One thing that's kind of a wrinkle to it that's kind of odd, and this is entirely because of the technology at the time, it's a four-level dungeon, but in the original release of the game, it's not like wizardry or... Ultima, where you're like exploring a dungeon and you find a ladder down to the next level and you explore that level and you go down and you go down. It's four levels and they're not randomly generated. They're pre-created levels. I think the locations of some of the stuff may change a little bit. I'm not sure. I could be wrong about that, but the levels are fixed. But you have to remember that this company is so early that it is before floppy disk drives have started to become standard on the early computer platforms. It's still cassette tape. Problem with cassette tape, or I should say one of many problems with cassette tape, but the one we're going to talk about now, is it's serial. It's not random access, it is serial. You put that tape in, it loads stuff in order. It cannot deviate from its order until it rewinds and goes back to the beginning and then it starts over again. It is not random access. And that's just going to cause a lot more wear and tear on the system. (laughs) Right. So rather than being a multi-level dungeon that you can explore and duck back and forth between levels, which really doesn't work when you don't have random access memory, instead, you start in the quote-unquote inn, where you can create characters. Then you choose a level of the dungeon to go through. Once you explore that whole level, you can go back to the inn. And then from the end, you can choose to go to a different level of the dungeon, because this is a way, if you could just go back and forth, back and forth, run between levels, that tape is (laughs) being, you know, very heartily abused. Extremely abused. And of course, it also means you can't save characters. In the original version, now, AppShy, because it is popular, comes out on floppy disk later. And this changes things some. But in the original version, because it's on tape, you also cannot save your character. So you actually have to keep track. If you want to use, quote-unquote, the same characters through multiple playthroughs, you actually have to keep track of their stats on paper. And then at the end, you have the option to create characters completely yourself rather than having them be randomly generated. And the reason for that is if you're done playing for the day and you don't get all through all the levels, you can write down your character stats on a piece of paper. And then when you come back... The next time, and load the game in again, you can recreate that character by inputting all the stats directly. That means you can also cheat and, you know, just make a ridiculously powerful character. Uh, take all the fun out of a simple game like that, probably, but <laughs> you technically could. So, in making Temple of Apshai, they took a very modular approach, and I'm sure that they were influenced by D&D in this way. So, Dungeons & Dragons had a basic rule set. And then once that basic rule set was introduced, TSR, the company, started creating adventure modules for the game. Little booklets that you would buy that had a canned adventure in it, and you could run your character through everything. They kind of modeled AppShy on this in the same way. Jim Connolly created an overarching game engine, essentially that it was relatively easy to plug in different dungeon designs, different creatures, different treasures, different this, different that, into this overarching engine that he created. John Freeman then went in and designed levels and put treasures in and all of that. And then they actually got help from yet another member of their D&D group, a school teacher named Jeff Johnson, who also helped with enemy design and level design and some of this other stuff alongside John Freeman. But because they had a fairly modular system like this, it made it very easy to create new scenarios using the same engine. And so that's what they started doing. They started just creating multiple games kind of in the same vein, many of them smaller, almost like expansions. But they're not expansions because it's not that you're playing, you need the core game to play them. They're not locking into the core game. But... It's essentially the same thing as the module system that Dungeons & Dragons even still uses to some extent today. So within the first year, they created two additional games, the Date Stones of Ren and Morlock's Tower, which were very small. One of them had just a single dungeon level. The other one had six levels compared to Apshire's 4, but the six levels were much smaller individually. But they sold them for a cheaper price because they weren't quite as big and they added a time limit to each of them to solve the game as a way of making it feel still like an intense game when you had such a small area that you were playing in, so it became more of a beat-the-clock kind of thing. They also borrowed the idea of D&D modules with the way they did the dungeon layout itself and the description of the dungeons. Because as I said, they're making these on primarily the TRS-80 and the Commodore PET. I mean, they come out on the Apple, and they come out on other platforms later. But they're making it on these systems They have character-based graphics only. So they're able to put walls in. I mean, you can get the basic layout of the maze, but there's no other features that you can put in there, and, and the monsters and whatnot are basically just ASCII art kind of thing again. So they actually put room descriptions in the manual for the game. And so when you enter a room, you look at the corresponding room description in the manual and it gives you this more evocative picture of what you're looking at, which again is very much like a D&D module where there's text in there that the DM is instructed to read to the players to describe the
0: room. So, you know, you can see they're drawing from that. You got things like room 1A, room 1B, 2C, 3H. And then you go in and it says, hey, look up in your manual book for H. The big bad monster is staring at you. Prepare to die.
1: (laughs) That's right. That's exactly what they did in these games. So they kind of evoked that same idea. So Temple of Apshite comes out in about August 1979, give or take. It's pretty successful for the time. By 1982... Which is a few years later, it's sold something like 25,000 copies, which for the time is stupendous, uh, by about 1985, because it's been ported to some other platforms. By then it sold about 100,000 copies, which is incredibly fabulous for a uh, computer game at that time in the United States. So, you know, it, they're on their way with Apshai, and they release these Date Stones of Ren, Morlock's Tower, and then they start using that same engine and doing even more games. They do a science fiction game, Rescue at Rigel. They do other games uh, like Temple of Apshai. They originally called that series Dungeon Quest, and it's Dungeon Quest with a uh, a J to make it look a little more exotic. But eventually, they start releasing these under the label Epics. So the company is still Automated Simulations, but they start releasing some of their RPG-like products under this epics name to kind of distinguish this as a sub brand was there a real reason they decided to create a new name well yeah because automated simulations just it doesn't sound like the name of something that is making rpgs wow something that's just it's epic
0: you're going on this adventure it's going to be epic man
1: epic. Exactly. Exactly. It it just sounds a little more natural. So it's, it's a brand at this point, not the company name. The company name is still Automated Simulations.
0: Do you know which one of the three came up with it?
1: No, I, I don't. Probably kind of all brainstormed it together, but would be my guess. But yeah, no, I don't know specifically who came up with it.
0: Okay. So a marketing thing and they came up with amongst themselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, you know, Temple of Apshai, they were calling it Dungeon Quest uh, when it started. So they kind of already had this idea of branding a little bit and again I'm sure it's something that came a little bit out of D&D where they were starting to use a few sub brands as well it all kind of makes sense in that sense the very early output of the company the output of the company between 1978 and 1982 or 1981 82 81 82 is very much oriented towards more strategy based kind of gameplay Because that's what Connolly's love, especially, and I also think Freeman's love, you know, was kind of at. So they're doing RPGs, which also grow out of that world, but they're doing also games that are very strategic. They did a, a monster game in 1981 called Crush, Crumble, and Chomp, which was not like the arcade game Rampage, where you're going around all action y and punching buildings in the face. You're actually building movie monsters out of templates of different abilities then you're sending your monster out that has his abilities and fighting to destroy the city or whatever, but you're doing it kind of in a more tactical, turn-based kind of setup. It's a strategy monster game, not an action monster game. So Crush, Cr- Crumble, and Chomp is kind of interesting. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. And they're doing more games, uh, more RPGs, like Apshai and Rescue at Rigel and all of that, and they're humming along. They're doing okay. The industry's growing rapidly. They need to kind of start growing too if they're going to keep making this work. At this point, where there is a split, I don't know all the details of the split, but Jim Connolly and John Freeman end up going their separate ways. John Freeman has just said he. Didn't like the direction the company was going. He felt it was getting more political, etc. He's never gone into more detail than that. I have not talked to John Freeman, but he, unlike Jim Connolly, has been interviewed several times by other people. Jim Connolly, I obviously asked about this. He says John was very angry with him. I mean, he could tell John was very upset. He claims that he didn't know why. Why? He just knew that John was unhappy and upset, and I mean really upset, noticeably upset, and ended up going off on his own. Susan Lee Mara, whom I've also interviewed, she actually joined Epics as, uh, or joined Automated Simulations as a product manager. All the members of the D&D group are coming in here. She recalls it coming down to financial stuff, largely. You may recall that I said that Jim Connolly is actually the one that founded the company, and then he granted shares in the company to John Freeman after the fact. She thinks that John was unhappy with the distribution between the two. He didn't think he was getting his fair share financially for what was going on. By this time, he had met a woman named Ann Westfall, who was a programmer, they actually met at a show. Ann Westfall was there with the company she was working for, and John Freeman was there with Automated Simulations. They had started dating. I'm not sure if they married. I can't remember if they had married yet by the time that he left Automated Simulations. I don't think they quite had, but they do get married. So, I mean, you know, they fell for each other. And he was very anxious to do stuff with her. She did a little bit of stuff for Automated Simulations. But another thing is, is that, you know, he had found, uh, love of his life or whatever, and was kind of eager to get more involved with collaborating with her because she's a programmer, the, the skill that he doesn't really have. Throw all of these things together and you have John Freeman ending up leaving the company in 1981. He and Ann Westfall go off and form Freefall Productions. And if you want to learn more about them, you can pick up that story in our six games of EA episode because you may recall that John Freeman and Ann Westfall and their company Freefall Productions made one of those original 6 electronic arts games the one that you love so much mm mm-hmm. Mhm See Epics is one of these companies that keeps coming up on the periphery of our uh, of our discussions here and <laughs> now we're finally getting the rest of the story <laughs> the prehistory <laughs> That leaves Connolly and some of the other people he's working with are other people at the company. But that leaves Connolly to kind of continue directing the company alone and, and figure out where it's going next. So by this time, 1981 into 1982, you have a situation where the home computer market is becoming very crowded. And it's kind of hard to tell where exactly it may be going. You've still got the Apple II up there on the hoity-toity high end, very expensive. But you have the cheap computers like the Commodore VIC-20 now coming in. And the Atari 800 is there, which is pretty expensive, but is also a superior system from an audiovisual capability, multimedia capability perspective. And you have both the VIC-20 and the Atari 800 are cartridge-based systems You can put disks in the Atari 800 too, but, you know, cartridge is coming in as a home computer medium, not just a console medium. So it's, it's a period of time where it was very hard to sense where the market was going, but you kind of knew the market was growing, at least, even if you didn't know what it was growing towards. So Jim Connolly makes a few decisions here, some of which I think it's fair to say he'd probably later regret, but to kind of transform the company, it clearly needs to become a more professional organization. So he gets a sales guy, he gets a marketing guy uh, who ends up staying with the company to near the end, named Bob Botch, and he gets some more kind of product development managers and kind of creates this core professional management team. He also goes out and gets venture capital funding. Because at this point, he's thinking he's going to need to get into the cartridge market, And by the cartridge market, I don't mean consoles. I mean Atari 800, VIC-20, TI-99, which is the Texas Instruments computer, cartridge market. This new wave of home computers that I think we've touched on in the past that have cartridge slots. Cartridges are a lot of overhead. It takes a lot of money. So the business at this point is essentially growing faster than revenues can keep up with it. So he brings in venture capital to try to keep up with the (laughs) growth of the computer game market and to also get into some of these more expensive areas like cartridges. Well, the problem with that is once the venture capitalists get in, they want a more professional leader for the company. Somebody with business experience, which is pretty typical of the kind of thing that venture capitalists want. They want some adult supervision to look after their investment, because we have to remember venture capital firms live and die on whether they make good bets, bet in solid companies. So they like to hedge those bets by bringing in leadership that they know they can trust. Jim Connolly, he's running the company, but he's a programmer. I mean, his background is in business. And I don't think Connolly necessarily begrudged them that, but the problem became their choice of CEO. And it's somebody that we've talked about before, particularly in the context of Sega, named Michael Katz. And we also talked about him with Mattel, too, because Mike Katz was a marketing guy that had gone to Mattel. He was very involved in the beginning of the handheld game business at Mattel that eventually birthed Mattel Electronics. We've talked about that a little bit. And later on, after he's at Automated Simulations, he goes to uh, Sega, and we talked about him in that context. But he was at Coleco at this time. He had gone from Mattel to Coleco. And he was head of marketing communications at Coleco, which is mostly about press releases and press inquiries. And he's the guy that's communicating what Coleco wants to communicate to the press and other interested parties. And, you know, he has a long track record working with electronic entertainment and he has a strong marketing background. So. This is the guy that the venture capitalists want to come in and run what is now, at this point, being called Epics. About 1982, they just decide that Epics is a stronger name, that automated simulations is very generic, doesn't necessarily scream computer game when you hear it. And so they decided to turn that brand into the name of the company. And so around 1982, it becomes Epix. The VCs have decided to bring in Mike Katz to run Epics. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's just Mike Katz and Jim Connolly do not get along. And he kind of rubs a lot of the other programmers the wrong way, too. It's a personality clash. It's partially, I think, he's a marketing guy, and the programmers don't know how to relate to that. There's a lot of consternation there. During the same period, Jim Connolly is working on a very ambitious game called Dragon Riders of Pern which, as the name implies, is based on the Anne McCaffrey novels. Basically what happened is he was at Toy Fair, and there was a licensed Pern board game at Toy Fair. And, you know, he's a board gamer, a war gamer, strategy gamer. He's like, oh, that's kind of cool. And so he got to talking with them, and through them he was able to contact McCaffrey's people, so he got a license for the Pern series through kind of that angle. So he wanted to do something more kind of like the board game that was very strategy-oriented. The VCs, now that we're moving on to these more mainstream home computer platforms and you've got arcade games, booming, 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 and action, action, action is kind of the name of the game, they're kind of like, no, we want you to make an action game. We want people riding dragons and fireballs and raw." So, Jim Connolly tries to do both. He tries to satisfy his desire for a strategy game and the VC's desire for an action game. It just doesn't work. These two genres, in this instance, do not meld together. It ends up being kind of a mess, and Connolly himself uh, (laughs) would say the same thing. So, that game didn't do very well. The style of game that he likes to do is not the style of game the VCs really want to do anymore. He's got the personality conflict with Katz going on, who's in charge of the company. He's the CEO. So in 1983, Jim Connolly leaves the company that he had founded, and he takes the vast majority of the programmers with him because they're also kind of unhappy. They found a new company called the Jim Connolly Group that becomes a contract programmer. They continue to work in the video game industry for several years after that as a contract developer for publishers they do some stuff a little bit for epics actually but he's basically severed his ties with epics at this point in 1983 so an early exit for the founder and essentially the co-founder even though as i said he got stock after the fact but the two principals of the company when the company was founded in november 1978 are both gone by 1983
0: <laughs> barely in there for 5 years
1: <laughs> yes so that inaugurates the, uh, the Michael Katz era at the company. Michael Katz's big idea, as he tells it, because I've talked to my Katz as well, and many other people have talked to my Katz. he's usually happy to talk to people, was that the company was going to do action strategy games. That's what he called the genre, I guess, that he wanted the company to be in. The way he thought that they could set themselves apart is they would do the more actiony games because that's where the certain aspects of the home computer market were going. That's more where the VIC-20 was going. Obviously with the crash, this changes, but at this time he kind of gets the sense that that's where the market's going. But Epix has built up this following with more strategy-based games. So the idea is we're going to p- combine the two and we're going to do action strategy. I mean, Technically, the Dragon Riders of Pern game, you could say, fits into this whole action strategy game, but that one was more like taking an action game and taking a strategy game and then smashing them together. What he's talking about is making games that are largely action games, but put something more strategy-based in there just to, I guess scratch the itch, have it there. Yeah, so uh, the example I'll give for that, which is a game that he came up with himself. It was an idea he came up with himself. He's not a programmer. He's not a game designer. So he didn't create the game. He just came up with the idea. But a good example of this is Pit Stop, which is a game they did. It's a racing game. So, you know, just like your pole positions or your grand tracks or whatever, you're racing around a track fighting against other cars. But the strategic element is that, you know, it's called Pit Stop. You can go into the pit to, like, change your tires or top off your fuel or whatever it is you can do in the game. So the strategy element is deciding, just like you would have to in a real NASCAR or Formula One race, deciding when to leave the track to get some kind of repair or tweak or adjustment on your vehicle and then return to the race. So you see, it's an action game, but they have that one little element that's more strategy-like. And so he called those action strategy games. As a concept, I don't think it's something that really took off. It's not, no one else really started calling their games action strategy games, but it worked. Uh, Pit Stop did very well. Another game that did very well in 1983 was a, a game called Jump Man. There was really no strategy in that one. It was all action created by a guy named Randy Glover, and it was a Donkey Kong clone. Mario was never actually called Jump Man, but... There was a brief period of time where it looked like he might be called Jumpman, and so the instructions for the arcade game call him Jumpman. But he's not called Jumpman anywhere else uh, in all the advertising materials and whatnot. He's called Mario. So that's even more of a ripoff. He's taking a name that's used in Donkey Kong, in his Donkey Kong clone. He says he didn't even realize that Jumpman was there. He might have subconsciously picked it up, but it's a Donkey Kong clone. He wasn't working for Epics. He submitted the game to them. He submitted it to Broderbund and to Epics. And the Broderbund people were like, Yeah, this is pretty good, but we'll have to polish it a little bit. Whereas the Epics people were like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. We'll absolutely just publish this for you. And so he went with the company that ooed and awed over it a little more, that seemed more enthusiastic. So those were both decent sized hits for the company in nineteen eighty three, Pit Stop and Jump Man. So Katz has kind of got this new idea that we're doing these action strategy games. He's kind of defined a new direction for the company. His problem now is he needs programmers. Because, as I said, Jim Connolly left with just about all of the programmers that were at the company. So he needs to refresh his staff. Automated Simulation slash epics is kind of unusual in that they primarily do all of their games in-house they don't do much in the way of accepting submissions. Now, yes, Randy Glover submitted Jumpman. It's not like they never do a submission-based game. But unlike some of the other early companies, they're very focused on having in-house staff do things. So he doesn't have any programmers anymore. I think part of the reason that he feels he needs programmers in-house is probably because he came from Mattel and Coleco, companies in the electronic handheld and console markets where you didn't take outside submissions. You did make the games yourself. Uh, and in fact, he even puts a couple of games on the ColecoVision. Uh, remember, he came from Coleco. Automated Simulation slash Epics never did anything on the 2600, but they actually did do a couple of things on ColecoVision because of that Michael Katz connection. But anyway, he needs programmers. He doesn't have them anymore. So he ends up acquiring slash merging with a company called StarPath. StarPath was created by 2 Exatari people. Dr. Bob Brown and Craig Nelson. Bob Brown had actually been one of the people that created the original Atari home game, the home Pong console that they put out in 1985. Then he had run the microelectronics department there for a couple of years, which meant that he was kind of in charge of all console hardware and software development. He kind of got shunted aside out of that position and ended up in charge of a, an R&D group. Then when Ray Kassar took over, that R&D group was axed in some of the reorganizations that followed. So he went back into corporate America, real corporate America, for a couple of years. And then in 1981, he joined up with this Craig Nelson guy, who was also ex-Atari. And they decided to create a third-party publisher for the Atari 2600. But they weren't just going to put out these little cartridge games. They created a device called the Supercharger. The Supercharger. Yes, Star Pass Supercharger. Because Craig Nelson was a hardware guy, in addition to knowing some things about uh, software. So they could do their own hardware. And they created the supercharger. What this was is it was a cartridge that you plugged into your VCS. This cartridge had six kilobytes of memory on it. Six kilobytes of RAM. Which I know sounds like a really, really small amount. But as we always remind our listeners when we are talking about the Atari 2600, the Atari 2600 had 128 bytes of memory.
0: So this is taking it to the nth degree. So that is a
1: huge amount of additional RAM. So this cartridge has the additional RAM, and then it has this plug that you use to plug it into a standard cassette player. Any cassette player you want, doesn't matter. Doesn't have to be some kind of special tape player. And then the games for the system came on cassette tape. Instead of on ROM, they could do bigger games. And, you know, even though cassette tape is a serial based interface, by adding that extra RAM in, that six kilobytes of RAM, you know, you could load temporarily your game from the cassette into the extended RAM, play your game on the VCS, and you had better graphics and sound and everything than you could get on a standard VCS. So that was their big claim to fame, was the Supercharger, and then they released uh, several games for it. The company never did that well, mostly because it wasn't too long after they got started that the whole market went kablooey. Atari market crashes, they're in trouble, they have programmers, and no prospects. Epix has prospects and no programmers, so they smoosh them together. Bob Brown doesn't stay with the company. He leaves once the merger's done. Craig Nelson and his brother Scott do stay with Epic's and take a leading role in product development from there on. And then most of the programmers that end up releasing the next round of Epic's games were people that had been Starpath programmers before that because they had hired on a, a sizable staff of programmers, sizable for the time. So, right away, Epix gets two very important products out of this merger with StarPath. The two products that kind of set their course going forward. The first of these comes from a guy named Dennis Caswell, who was one of these programmers working at StarPath. Caswell had been fooling around with a running man. You have to remember that at this time, the idea of being able to animate... A proportional human figure was still a very, very new thing. We talked about how Mario became Mario the way he was, squashed with the hat and the mustache and everything, just because that was a lot easier to animate. Pitfall had just come out on the VCS in 1982 and had blown people away because it was the first time that the VCS had ever had kind of a credible animated figure that could run and jump and swing on vines and all of that. So running men are still a pretty big deal, even here in 83 into 84, when Caswell is working on this uh, guy. His Running Man is even larger and slightly more detailed than, like, the Running Man on Pitfall and whatnot. So he gets a Running Man going, and then he's inspired by the movie War Games. Not so much the plot of the movie, because what he makes really has nothing at all to do with the plot of War Games. But this idea of there being a supercomputer with a military bent that is controlling things, that aspect of it, he kind of likes. So he creates a platform game where there's this uh, evil mad scientist person who has hacked into national security computers, and he's hacked into the computer that's responsible for the nuclear war, and is going to make it play a nice game of nuclear war, so to speak. Everyone's favorite game. We, of course, love that
0: game, especially (laughs) when we win it.
1: Right. And so there's a password that can be used to regain access to the computer and avert calamity. Your running man, he's going through a bunch of different rooms that are each a bunch of different platform stages, looking for the various parts of the password, avoiding security robots, uh, which he can also temporarily stun, and trying to reassemble this password so he can avert disaster. They call the game Impossible Mission obviously kind of influenced by the television show Mission Impossible, though again it doesn't share any specific like plot elements with Mission Impossible any more than it does with war games, other than the fact that you are a secret agent and the people in Mission Impossible are secret agents, but other than that, there's nothing there. But that's the game, Impossible Mission. It's a platform game, and uh it's released in nineteen eighty four. It does very well for them. Now, some people may be wondering okay, wait a minute. The video game crash happened in 1982, 83, really 83. You've said before that once the crash happened, action games kind of just vanished from American home computer platforms. So why is this platform game done in 1984, well after the crash has firmly taken root and destroyed everything? Why is this game successful? Why is this the game that makes Epics a really prominent company? Well, I'll tell you why. Why? Because one of the really smart things that Mike Katz did is he got Epics into Europe very early for an American company. Not the first ones in Europe, but still very early. Uh, in 1984, it might have been at the tail end of 83, but tail end of 83, beginning of 84, they make a deal with CBS Software. CBS Software had been founded during the height of the video game boom, and because CBS was an international conglomerate, CBS already had distribution networks and whatnot set up around the world, so CBS Software was not in the business very long, but when they were in the business, they did have international distribution. Epix got in with CBS Software right away in 1984. And Impossible Mission was a Commodore 64 game, and it was released in
0: Europe. So it's really the fact that Mike Katz was able to diversify the company enough and bring it international that let them weather the storm of the U.S. collapse so they could just work and survive very well off of the European and other foreign markets. Yeah,
1: because Impossible Mission... Was, it did okay in the United States. I mean, it wasn't a flop in the United States. It did fine. But it was a mega hit in Europe. Because, of course, we've talked about the arcade adventures and how popular platform games with a little bit of strategy in them were becoming in the United Kingdom in the 1983, 1984, 1985 period. We did that in an arcade adventure episode. So Impossible Mission had a lot of the hallmarks of what the British would call an arcade adventure, because you're moving around room to room, you're collecting items, the parts to this password, and you've got platforming action going on. So it hit, you know, right after Manic Miner hit big, and right when the European market was eating this stuff up. So because that game was released in Europe, it became a big, big hit in Europe, in the United Kingdom, specifically. So that was one of the two games that really defined the company in 1984. The other game was, again, something that was started at Starpath. So this is why Starpath was so important to the future of epics, because both of these big hits came out of there. A year or so prior to the merger, the programmers at Starpath had been talking about doing a decathlon
0: game. What's a decathlon game?
1: Well, decathlon is an Olympic event. You know, it's like the biathlon, the triathlon, except the decathlon is ten events that a single athlete has to do. And uh those events they vary slightly between men's and, and women's decathlon, but men's decathlon is a hundred meter dash, long jump, shot put, high jump, four hundred meter dash, hundred and ten meter hurdles, discus, pole vault, javelin and 1,500-meter dash. The women's decathlon is the same events, they just do them in a different order. And they do, I guess, 100-meter hurdles instead of 110-meter hurdles. But for all intents and purposes, they run the, the same events. But it's 10 track and field events. It's considered the most grueling event in all of uh, Olympic sports. Obviously, the people that do the decathlon, like the person that does the decathlon isn't going to be the world record holder in the 100 meters. The world record holder in the 100 meters is the person that does nothing but the 100 and maybe the 200-meter race and puts all their energy to that. But to succeed in the decathlon, you have to be a decently fast runner. You have to have decent endurance because you do an endurance race, too. You have to be a decently good jumper, decently good this, decently good that. You have to be kind of good at a little bit of everything. So it's a prestigious event. So they'd been toying with doing a decathlon game. They ended up not doing it. But once the merger happened with Epics, and they were thinking of what games do we want to do, this is when we're coming up on the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984. The 84 Olympics were the first time that the United States had the Summer Olympics in a very, very long time. They'd had the Winter Olympics a couple of times but it had been a long time for the Summer Olympics. So the 1984 Olympics were a really, really big deal in the United States. Everybody who was anybody wanted to get a piece of that. McDonald's did a sweepstakes where people could win free McDonald's stuff if the Americans won certain events. And then they stacked it so that a lot of the prizes would be in events that the Soviet bloc usually dominated. And then the Soviets boycotted the Olympics, and McDonald's had to give away a lot of free food. Those of you that were not old enough to remember that may have seen the Simpsons episode where Krusty Burger does the same thing. Hmm. That was actually based on on what really happened to McDonald's. (laughs) That's a complete tangent, but I just find it funny, so I put it in there. And I might find it funny enough to find a reference and throw it in the show notes. (laughs) Exactly. So the Olympics were a huge deal. Everyone wanted to be involved in tie-ins with that. So they were like, well, we were kind of doing this decathlon game. Why don't we make an Olympic game? Summer Olympics game. What they made was not a decathlon game at that point. The decathlon game was just the inspiration. But they were like, we'll do something with a bunch of different Olympic events in it. Maybe we can even get some kind of... Sponsorship with the Olympic Games. And wouldn't that be awesome? Well, they couldn't get the sponsorship because Atari had already become the official sponsor of the 1984 Olympics. And then Atari went up in flames. So Atari never really did anything with that sponsorship, but they had the sponsorship. So they had to come up with something else. And so they were playing around with names, things like LA Games or whatnot. And they were like, well, really, since we don't have the Olympic license, we don't really want to get anywhere near anything that may seem like it's tied to this specific Olympics because that'll work against us. So finally, I think it was Bob Boch, the marketing guy that I mentioned previously, that finally came up with the name. It's like, well, let's call it Summer Games. That's what they did, they called it. Summer Games. They uh, chose a variety of events, partly based on what people were interested in, what individual programmers were interested in, uh, partially based on adding in a couple more events just to round things out, and came up with a game with seven different events. They had a diving event, they had a skeet shooting event, swimming, gymnastics, rowing, pole vault, they obviously couldn't encapsulate all of the Olympics because hardware restrictions, memory restrictions, etc. at the time. But they chose a cross-section and made this game where you use different control schemes, different wiggling wagglings of the joystick to uh, participate in all of these events. And they had a bunch of real-world nations in them, with complete with their flags and national anthems, and hooray! It's interesting because it's one of the very first computer games that was actually created by a significantly sized team with multiple programmers and even a dedicated artist. I think some of that is because they were coming out of the console tradition because Starpath had been a console company and Mike Katz had been a console company executive. And console companies had started diversifying into larger teams kind of in the 1981-1982 1983 time period. So they kind of applied that here. They had a lot of in house programmers, which was unusual for a computer game company at the time, and they put them all on this game. So they had like three or four different programmers, each doing one or two events, and then tied it all together into this complete package. So Summer Games is released in 1984, and it is a massive hit. It sells hundreds of thousands of copies. It sold at least 250,000 because it was certified platinum by the Software Publishers Association. But it probably sold a little more than that, probably more on the order of 300,000, maybe even 400,000 copies. I mean, it was a massive hit for the time. And again, yes, it sold well in the United States, but it was also helped by the fact that they were in Europe. And by now, they were no longer with CBS. CBS is the first one they got into. But very soon after that, they got in instead with a company called U.S. Gold. U.S. Gold is a company that's worth its own episode someday, so won't go into a lot of detail on who they were here and now. But basically, it was founded by a guy named Jeff Brown, who had seen that the computer games in the United States were technologically well ahead of most of the computer games being created in the United Kingdom, not because of the capabilities of the programmers, but primarily because by this time, the entire U.S. market is disc-based and the British market is still cassette-based. And so there's less they can do. There's only so much they can do. Uh, And then, of course, the ZX Spectrum, which was one of the primary platforms in the United Kingdom, was a more limited computer. We talked about that in some of our previous episodes. So because of these technical limitations, the Americans were doing games that were more technologically impressive than a lot of the British games. And so Jeff Brown founded this company, U.S. Gold, to bring software from the United States over to the United Kingdom. That's why it's called U.S. Gold. And at first, what uh, Epic's did is U.S. Gold was their British publisher, and then they made other deals with like someone in France, somebody in Sweden, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, around Europe. Then they discovered that those companies were kind of competing with each other, where, yes, U.S. Gold has the British rights, but U.S. Gold also saw- sells on the continent, so they're also peddling it there, which means that they're butting up against the French distributor. And so they very quickly actually have U.S. Gold take over all of Europe. U.S. Gold was a very successful, very effective software distribution house. So, Epic's being in with U.S. Gold meant that their product got excellent distribution, excellent advertising, excellent placement in Europe. And action games, again, in Europe were doing much better than action games were doing in the United States. So, even though, again, yes, the game did well in the United States epics was one of the rare companies that was bucking the trend and having success with action games in the united states i guess you know the market had room for one company doing that it just didn't have room for everybody doing that but in europe it's just
0: massive it seems like they really survived the crash and have well, they, themselves, they did yeah they really survived it and they have themselves set up to really succeed but as we said at the beginning of the episode They really fell in the later 80s and sort of had a whimpering end in the early 90s. Since they seem to have really set themselves up really good, how did they fall?
1: Well, they took their eye off the ball. They moved away from their primary businesses. This was their mistake. So the game series does very well throughout the rest of the 80s. They follow Summer Games with Summer Games 2 which adds more events. They had had a few more events than they could cram into the first one, so they took those, plus added a few more events, made summer games too. They did winter games. They did world games, which was kind of a more uh, quixotic game. The conceit was they were doing games that were endemic to particular countries in the world, so they had kind of wilder stuff in there like the Caber Toss and sumo wrestling and... Weightlifting and and kind of these more exotic games. And that did very well. Then a guy named Matt Householder did what may have been, well, probably wasn't quite the most successful game in the game series, but one of the highly successful games in the series California Games, because he was kind of exposed living in California to some of the what we now call extreme sports that people were doing in California, like BMX biking, skateboarding, surfing. His wife actually kind of suggested to him, you know, these would be kind of cool in a computer game and so Matt Householder created California Games and this series is selling hundreds of thousands of copies and everything's looking great and then Mike Katz leaves the company. He gets recruited by Jack Tremell to come and relaunch Atari's console stuff, you know, the 7800 and whatnot at Atari Corporation. So they need a new CEO. The uh, CFO, the chief Financial Officer of the company, Gil Freeman, takes over the company on an interim basis. But you know, he's a finance guy. he's not really necessarily the manager type. So he's kind of a temporary stopgap solution at the same time that Epics requires a new CEO. Two guys named Dave Needle and RJ. McCall that had been engineers on the Commodore Amiga, Needle had been one of the big hardware engineers on it, McCall had been one of the big programmers on it, had gotten together and came up with the idea for a new handheld game system with color graphics and all sorts of fun stuff. And they needed a place where they could house this project and create this portable game system. So, they got together with David Morse, who had been the president of Amiga Corporation before Amiga was bought out by Commodore, which ended up releasing the computer. They decided that Morse would find a company for them that could take over this project. So, Morse ends up wrangling himself into becoming the new CEO of Epix. And then, Morse, once he's CEO, Convinces the board to take on the handy game project that Needle and McCall have been doing. He goes out and gets new venture financing, raises more money because he's getting them into the hardware business, and he wants this company that's probably got revenues of about thirty million a year to become a one hundred million dollar company within the next couple of years, primarily driven by this new hardware business well. A computer game company that is a very successful computer game company, but is small potatoes in the grand scheme of life, trying to now suddenly develop hardware, develop a handheld gaming system, and then make cartridge product for that handheld gaming system? That's nuts.
0: You have to build it all up from scratch. You have to get hardware people in there who really understand how hardware works. You have to bring them out from the outside because I doubt they have anyone in house that's capable of doing this. Right. Then you have to have the proper management, distribution, sourcing of all those materials and have that work. That's just a nightmare. Look at Atari. Atari tried to do it a few times and had a sort of hit or miss thing going on with it, especially in the later years. Right.
1: So, they're spending lots of money on this hardware development. They're still doing okay in computer games. We talked about in the Sega episode how they start bringing in a lot of stuff from Europe. I mean, they're already embedded in Europe in terms of exporting their company there, but because they've got these contacts in Europe... They start making inroads with companies like InfoGrom. We talked about this in our InfoGrom episode, how Epic's actually even almost bought InfoGrom at one point. Talked about that in the, uh, the InfoGrom episode. With Novatrade in Hungary is another company, they start having these developers in Hungary and Britain and France and whatnot making games that they then bring into the United States. They've got the game series going, but now they've got all of this new cost. Now, there's one thing that could have probably helped them fund this, because this is also the same period of time when a little thing called the Nintendo Entertainment System hit the market. And I hear that that was kind of a big deal.
0: Maybe.
1: Now, we've probably talked about this before, but most computer game companies were very hesitant to enter the NES market. Some of them, like Sierra, still had gotten burned by the crash. You know, Sierra, you may recall from our episode discussing them nearly went bankrupt as a result of the crash. And so didn't want to get involved again. Other companies, like Electronic Arts, didn't want to give up all the control that Nintendo demanded. Bob Botch at Epics was not one of these hesitant people. Bob Botch at Epics wanted to be on the NES. He thought this was going to be a smoking-hot new platform, and they needed to be there, and they whipped up a version of Winter Games to be their one of their debut products on the platform, and they were all ready to go, and Dave
0: Morse said, No. But I have a copy of Winter Games, so there was yes at some point there. <laughs>
1: Yes, well, sometime look at the label and see if it says it was released by Epics. Hmm. <laughs> so, Dave Morse, you may recall, had been at Amiga. Amiga had started out as a company that was going to make a video game system. And then after the crash happened, they shifted their technology towards making a computer instead, which is the computer that eventually became the Commodore Amiga. So Morse was very much in the camp of consoles, Bad. raw. So Dave Moore said, no, we're not getting into that market. So they ended up having to license instead to Acclaim. And Acclaim put out Winter Games. So they got a royalty. But you don't make nearly as much money just collecting a, a small royalty as you would have if you actually went in and sold all of that yourself. You're just getting a percentage, <laughs> you know. So they missed the NES market. Now they're throwing all of this money at this game system. Handheld. Because he doesn't want them on the NES, but he's still like, okay, this handheld could be cool. So they take the handy game, they shop it around. They take it to Nintendo and demonstrate it to Nintendo, to Mr. Yamauchi. And uh, Mr. Yamauchi is like, hmm. And then he shows them the Game Boy, which was still secret at this point that they were working on it. It's like, okay, well, Nintendo's not going to do anything with this. They show it to Sega as well. Dave Needle, who has since passed away, but when he was still alive, he gave a couple of interviews. Dave Needle claims that Sega basically stole their handy game to create Game Gear. They're, they're not identical systems, but he said there's a lot of similarities in that they even subcontracted him to fix some bug, which was the exact same bug that they had in their system at Epic's. And there's some hint, Hideki Sato, who was at Sega, is given an oral history, and he doesn't say that they stole it or anything, but there's some hint, it kind of hints in there that they may have gotten the idea to do the Game Gear after seeing the Epics game. Sega's out because they are going to do Game Gear on their own. Nintendo's out because they were already working on Game Boy. That leaves one company that they can bring this to, because even though they're putting all this money into development, They really can't ramp up the manufacturing and whatnot themselves. So that leaves one company, Atari Corporation.
0: But they're practically dead now.
1: Well, no, Atari Corporation is doing better. They're about to do worse again, but they're kind of doing better. They're riding a little high. The Atari ST computer has been somewhat successful. They have relaunched their video games, and while they never take a huge share of the market, you know, they make a little money from it. This is the brief period when they're doing pretty well. They take it to Jack Trammell and Sam Trammell at Atari, and they say, okay, we'll we'll do this thing. So they're working together, continuing on that. Atari takes over kind of the hardware. The Epic's people are still making software for it. This is the point where Atari changes the name from the handy game to the Lynx, emphasizing the link cables so you can link multiple systems together. What we've been talking about this whole time is the Atari Lynx handheld. Then either... As a business tactic, or because Atari starts not doing as well, or who knows what other reasons, Atari basically stops paying Milestone's payments on the project. Hmm. And they kind of need money to, you know, work. Right. By this time, Bob Botch has left the company. Botch is not happy at all with the hardware direction. He was against it all along. And so their savvy marketer is quit. They've got this hardware project that they are now not getting the development money they need for, possibly because Jack Trammell is using this as a scheme to take over the hardware, which is ultimately what Atari does. Rather than being a license, they end up just absorbing (laughs) links. Could be that he did this deliberately to make that happen. But this is also a period where Atari was starting to get a little wobbly again, so they could have been doing that to kind of save on their costs as well. I don't know. Jack Tremell is definitely the type that would squeeze a supplier, so it would not be out of character for him to deliberately withhold payments to put Epics in a weaker position, but it wasn't necessarily that. They've done a couple of other things that haven't worked out well. One thing that Bob Botch admits, I've talked to him too, that he did do before he left the company, is they made a foray into VCR games, which were a fad very temporarily in the late 1980s. And uh, that didn't go well for them. That wasn't as big a blow as the whole Lynx thing, though. So basically, because of all of this, they end up spiraling into bankruptcy. Morse is dismissed as CEO. Gil Freeman comes back in because he never left the company. He just served as CEO very briefly while they were looking for a new one. Then Morse came in, but he stayed at the company as president, I believe. And now he's CEO again upon the departure of Morse. At this point, there's not much more to do than to wrap it all up. I mean, they've had to lay off a bunch of people, they're hemorrhaging cash, it's a disaster. By 1991, they're essentially not doing anything anymore. You know, they helped finish some Lynx games somewhere in there, but of course the Lynx was a disaster. It did not perform well against the Game Boy and not even against the Game Gear. Uh, It had the same problem that all these do, is that it took a million batteries because it was a color screen, and what's the point in a portable system that you can only play for half an hour when it's not plugged into something? That falls apart. Epics declares bankruptcy, it limps along for a couple of years, and then in nineteen ninety three its assets are sold to something called the Bridgestone Group, which was essentially making Christian stuff. so then the Bridgestone Group took it over and did whatever and I think they kept one or two employees, but everyone was basically gone. Epics is just one of those firms that has never ever, ever come back. No one's really tried to use the brand again. I mean, some of the game concepts, like the games series, have continued on in some form or another, but
0: at the end of the 80s, it was just gone. (laughs) But really, the entire hardware thing just torpedoed the entire company, especially since they couldn't find a buyer, and the buyer that they sort of had with Atari pretty much just put the screws to them, and they couldn't survive that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know why... The company would do something like that. I mean, I know why Morse did it. That was his entire goal Mm. on joining the company and becoming CEO was to turn them towards this project. I don't know why the board let him do it. It was nuts for a mid-tier software company, a mid-tier computer game company, even a successful one to do something like that. And, I mean, they had a great thing going with the game series. Mm-hmm. They, they couldn't have kept, I mean, they'd have had to innovate and do something else eventually. But the games series was huge. Every one of those games was selling 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 copies, which were nuts figures. And, you know, they'd have done fantastic on the NES. And, in fact, I'm pretty sure California Games did do pretty darn great business on the NES. Again, ported by another company. You know, they invested in hardware, which was nuts. They missed the NES market, which was more stupid for them than any of the other computer game companies because they were the one big company in the United States that was making games that would fit perfectly on the Nintendo Entertainment System. And Bob Botch knew it. There were people at the company that knew it. Mm-hmm. And David Morse just wouldn't let him. <laughs> oh, wow. Well. So. Live and learn. So yeah, that's, that's, that's Epics. you know, most of the product development people there went on to Sega. Mike Katz was briefly president of Sega of America, but then Ken Balthasar, who was a producer there, went on to do product development. Robert Lindsay was in charge of creative development at the company. He became a Sega producer. Joe Miller, who was a producer at Epics, became VP of R&D at Sega. So a bunch of Epics people went to Sega on the management end, product management end, on the developer end, Steve Landrum and Michael Kosaka went to Electronic Arts and helped create the first internally designed game at EA, Skater Die, which was very very much based on the games series which had been so uh, successful and so influential. So the influence of Epics continued on after the company itself had gone away. You know, we talked about how you wouldn't have probably heard of InfoGrom today if Sega had not helped save them during a period in the early 90s when they were in financial distress. And the reason that Sega knew about them, as we talked about in that episode, was Ken Thaser, who had been at Epics, had worked with InfoGrom while they were at Epics, And so when he started product development at Sega, he started using all of those same European developers that Epics had used. And so the reason that Infogrom continued to survive and could become the big company it did is in part because of Epics. I mean, it's, its influence is huge, but it lasted such a short amount of time just because later management made some really bad choices.
0: I think that pretty much sums it up there. It's a great company that had a brief run, but still had enough of a reverberation throughout the entire video game industry that we still have various effects of its influence to this day. Absolutely. And now I get to ask you everyone's favorite question. What do we delve into in our next episode?
1: Well, today we talked about a smaller, in the grand scheme of life, computer-related company. Mm-hmm. I think next time we should talk about a big one. A big one, huh? Like, really big. I thought we covered all the big ones. Well, I, I didn't say computer games, I said computers. Really big. Oh, computer. Really big. Really big computer. The IBM? The IBM. That's right. I've been reading a a new book, relatively new book, released earlier this year on IBM, so that's gotten me thinking about international business machines, and of course you cannot tell the story of computer game history without understanding IBM and how dominant IBM was and what IBM brought to the personal computer market, and then how the companies that followed in their footsteps with the compatibles took that whole thing and ran with it. I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up being a two-parter of some kind, because I think there's probably enough material to get two parts out of, and I think it's time we turned our attention to Big Blue.
0: All right. Big Blue, the IBM era. Next time, on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.